The topic of tech, it's a place where our lives meet science and business and culture and where so much is actually debatable. And that's why at Intelligence Squared we have debated tech's impact uh, numerous times in numerous areas on the issues of privacy, on security, on our brains, on the state of our discourse. But this time we're going a little bit more global. Most of the online, most of the online giants that we know, like Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon, they are products of American capitalism, but they play around the world, including in Europe, where the rules are different. Europe has passed laws that do set limits on what these companies can do in a range of areas, including user data, with you know, putting limitations on the gathering of and the storage of and the selling of and the deleting of. And some people here in the US, including some of the people who are now running for president in 2020, are suggesting that the US should do some of the same. So how is Europe's approach working out so far? Once again, then on the topic of tech, we think we have the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, Europe has declared war on American tech companies. I'm John Donvan. I stand between two teams of two who are experts in this topic who will argue for and against that resolution. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the K Playhouse in New York City will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. One more reminder to the audience to cast your pre-debate vote, iq2us.org forward slash vote, and that will give you prompts to tell us where you stand on this resolution as the evening begins. Our resolution, one more time, Europe has declared war on American tech companies. Let's meet our debaters. Please, ladies and gentlemen, first welcome Rosalind Layton. Great to be here. Rosalind, uh, you're a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. While there, at there, at that place, you research and analyze all things tech and communications. Uh, you also hold positions in Denmark, uh, including visiting researcher at Aalborg University. Did I pronounce that correctly? That's correct. Thank you. And uh, I just want to say, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Great to be here. Great to have you. And let's now meet your partner. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Baron Soka. Baron, welcome. You are uh, a lawyer. You're a technology policy lawyer. You're the founder and president of an organization called Tech Freedom. That's a think, bank, think tank based in Washington. Great to have you with us, Baron. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Baron Soka and the team arguing for the resolution. And let's meet the team arguing against the resolution. Europe has declared war on American tech companies. First, please welcome Maricha Shake. Richa, you are a former member of the European Parliament, and you are now the International Policy Director at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. You have debated with us before. You have won when you have debated with us. So I want to say congratulations, and I also want to say welcome back. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Thank you. And finally, let's meet your teammate, ladies and gentlemen, Ramesh Srinivasan. Ramesh, um, you're at UCLA. You're a professor at UCLA. You're a founder and director of the UC Digital Cultures Lab. Uh, you're also the author of a new book, Beyond the Valley, and it is great to have you joining us. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks so Thanks, much. John. Ladies and gentlemen, the teams arguing for and against the resolution. So let's move on to the debate proper. We go to round one. Round one will be opening statements by each debater in turn. Rosalind, you can make your way to the lectern. Up to speak up to speak first in support of the resolution, Europe has declared war on American tech companies, Rosalind Layton, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Rosalind Layton. So, well, thank you to Intelligence Squared for hosting this debate and to our colleagues. My team has one job this evening, to convince you that Europe has declared war on America's tech companies. 
Now, I'm an American, but I live in Copenhagen. I've lived in the Netherlands for two years and Denmark for 10. And I want Europe to succeed in the digital economy, if for nothing else, for my three European children. For 20 years, the EU has pursued very well-intentioned but misguided regulatory policies for the tech industry. They haven't succeeded to create the tech companies that they had want. There's no European tech company that you can probably name besides Spotify. In fact, the situation is so bad today that the Europeans feel no choice but to have to go to war to remedy this situation. In fact, the incoming EU president has said it's too late for the EU to build its own tech platforms. Paul Nimitz of the European Commission took it a step further and said it's the end of democracy. Now, let's be clear about what this debate is about. This debate is about war, not competition. Competition is a merit-based contest in which companies attempt to win your favor with better goods and services. War, on the other hand, is a conflict carried out by force to undermine or destroy one's adversary. We will show you that the European policymakers no longer want to compete. They want to subjugate American tech companies. Now, we're not debating whether American tech companies are problematic. They are. We're not debating whether American tech companies behave in ways that can be greedy and arrogant and untrustworthy. They do. And we're not debating that uh, these companies should not be regulated. They should. We're not even debating whether there should be a war. We're only debating that there is one. Now, you can think that the companies should be left alone, but you can still degree, agree that a war has been declared on them. And in, indeed, you'll hear a lot of good points tonight, but that doesn't change the fact that there is a war. Voting for this motion is a simple, fact-based binary statement. Europe has declared war on American tech companies. We will give you the facts and reasons why. Now, our distinguished opponents are likely going to say, the EU's just conducting policy. They're not waging a war. Well, if you ask the European leaders, they'll say the time for policy is over. Now, the irony here, we just talked about GDPR. This is uh, general data protection regulation. It's proposed as a privacy across the 173 chapters of this mammoth regulation. That word does not appear once. The, one day after it launched, 1,000 U.S. startups stopped serving the EU because of 45 bone-crushing regulations that cost millions of dollars to implement. That was the first step to get rid of the low-hanging flute of American companies, get it out of the way. The second step is to go after American companies, which with, I quote, from La Croix de Tour du Net, which said, let's attack les GAFAM, and methodically deconstruct them and their allies in the press and government. Two years after this regulation's taken effect, consumers don't say they're better off. In fact, they install pop-up blockers on their phones to stop the GDPR uh, 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 pop-ups coming into their face. They report the lowest level of trust online since 2006. Now, there's something deeper going on here. This is a conflict between ordinary Europeans and European elites. The Europeans are still suffering from the 2008 financial crisis. The voters are so angry and disappointed with the EU's lack of success, so much so that they want to leave the European Union. The Brexit vote of 2016, it shocked Brussels to the core. So the key conflict in Europe today is not whether you're left or right, it's whether you're for or against the European Union. And the EU leaders are so desperate for credibility and a reason for being, and they have to stop these countries who want to exit the European Union. So 
What is more visible than anything else when you go to Europe? It's American technology. The iPhone, Google Maps, Amazon Prime, WhatsApp, you name it. All of these things that Europeans use. So the European leaders think if they can overcome American tech companies, if they can show the EU is good for something, then maybe they will love the European Union again. Now, it didn't have to be this way. In the year 2000, Europe thought it would lead the world in the tech economy. It was a time of optimism and promise. The communist countries were welcomed into the European Union. There was the euro and the GSM standard for global communication. Nokia and five other European companies made phones in Europe. Legendary startups like Skype and Angry Birds. And the region accounted for one-third of the world's total investment. And treasuries were filled with billions of euros from the Spectrum auctions. But where is Europe today? Two years behind on 5G. And the capital has just gone away. And Nokia was, and Skype were bought by Microsoft. And all of this is so tragic because it didn't have to be that way. And there's so many uh, deserving, well-educated and hardworking people. So Europe has declared war on American tech companies, but it's a war of desperation. And these policies haven't worked, so they have, feel like there's only one option left. They have to dismantle the companies that stand in the way of their legitimacy. Now, Barron is going to describe the story in more detail. He'll show you it's not just a war against U.S. tech. It's a war against our technological future. By the end of this debate, you will have no doubt that Europe has declared war on American tech companies, and you will be able to vote for this motion. Thank you, Rosalind Leighton. And that motion, again, Europe has declared war on American tech companies, and here to make his opening statement against the resolution is Ramesh Srinivasan. He is founder and director of the U.S. Digital Cultures Lab. Ladies and gentlemen, Ramesh Srinivasan. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. It's great to be here with you. I start with a quote. People around the world have called for comprehensive privacy regulation in line with the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, what we call the GDPR. And I agree. I believe it would be good for the internet if other nations adopted regulations like these. Who said that? Mark Zuckerberg said that, founder and CEO of Facebook. Far from being at war with the European Union, we can see how in Zuckerberg's own words and stated desires, how European Re Union regulations, specifically the GDPR, which he cites, are consistent with the founder of Facebook's own stated goals. In my remarks today, I will explain why it's important to oppose this motion and why the European Union is not declaring war against American tech companies for several reasons. First of all, Customer-focused branding. American technology companies are focused on customers in ways that respect their public appeal, in ways that are actually consistent with the European Union's own policies toward technology companies. So if you actually want to look at what the European Union is actually implementing, it's consistent with the branding and the public statements of American tech companies. Second, European Union regulations assist technology companies to reach their citizens and consumers. So, and you can see European Union as actually, as, as, as conciliatory, as diplomats, as communicators with technology companies in this manner. Third, we can see actually how the European Union regulations actually 
support liberties of all kinds. They support the liberties of business interests, they support consumers, and they actually support a free market of ideas by supporting all these different types of interests. So let me start by just reminding us how the internet was founded. I'm at UCLA, and the first node of the internet is right next to my office. It's right next to where I go and get coffee sometimes and run away from my students sometimes, too. Uh, it's a the internet was publicly funded by American taxpayers. What about the web? The web was a nonprofit scholarly communication system for scientists to share information with one another. So, in a sense, there would be no internet without the government. There'd be no internet without public regulations of some form or public subsidies of some form. And in fact, there would be no technology companies without the internet, uh, without, without the internet and therefore the government itself. So let's look at these brands as I spoke about earlier. Apple calls its retail centers town squares. It's almost like Apple appears to be something like the state or the government. Apple claims in its branding that its technology engages in privacy protections. Guess what privacy protections also sound like? Exactly the European Union's own regulations. Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg on multiple occasions has called Facebook the social infrastructure, note these words, for the global community. Is there anything more public in its branding than that? Is that not consistent with a part of the world who has consumers and citizens saying, here's how we can work with you, big tech companies. Here are ways our consumers can actually engage with you. Amazon, in 2017, Jeff Bezos described Amazon as the Earth's most customer-centric company. And in other uh, utterances, he's described Amazon as the ultimate marketplace. Again, a marketplace doesn't necessarily mean a privatized space. It actually means a place where we all contribute and share content, uh, objects, books. Remember when Amazon was just books? Now it's everything, right? But it's peer-to-peer -peer sharing. And that is a that is a form of public virtuous exchange that technology companies profit off of. Even Google has argued that they bring the world together, not to be evil in the past, create universally accessible content for everybody that is meaningful for everyone. So these are really important points. The public language and even the stated policies that are, that are actually interpreted and stated externally by tech companies themselves are consistent with the European Union's regulations, which, which my wonderful partner Maricha is going to explain a little bit in her remarks. So we can actually see European Union regulations as assisting technology companies in their mission, in their stated mission. We can also see parts of the European Union regulations really helping technology companies with some of their most spectacular failures, like algorithmic radicalization or AI auditing, for example. I don't know how many of you know that facial recognition systems across the board have almost no ability to tell famous black women like Michelle Obama, Serena Williams, Oprah, they often think that these women are male. The same is true with AI systems of all kinds, which we saw contribute to the radicalization that led to the Brexit vote, that led to uh, the election in 2016, that influenced the election in various manners. So we can actually see this kind of component, the problems that technology companies face, actually be resolved by the European Union's own content. In a sense, the European Union is actually pointing us the way forward toward a humane world, a balanced world, one that supports the liberties, values, and freedoms of all of its stakeholders. 
And that's why I think it's extremely important to understand what the European Union is actually about. It's supporting people engaging with technologies and platforms and companies. It's about a relationship that we all build with one another. It's consistent, again, with the language that the tech companies speak. That is why I ask you all to really keep in mind these points and why you must vote against the motion that the European Union has declared war on American technology companies. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ramesh Srinivasan. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution. Europe has declared war on American tech companies. You've heard from the first two debaters and now on to the third. He'll be debating for the resolution. Please welcome Baron Soka, founder and president of Tech Freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, Baron Soka. This debate is not about taking sides between the EU and the US. Rosalind and I are about as pro-European as any two Americans you can find. We both want to see Europe succeed. My father was German. He was a green energy pioneer. I've spent much of the last year navigating the process of German bureaucracy, of privacy laws, trying to collect the documentation that I need to claim my own German citizenship. And I've spent much of the last year in Europe. Who would live in the US these days if they didn't have to? Why would you stay in DC, right? I love Europe. I love being there. It's a great place to be an intellectual, to write about technology policy, to have debates about what the good life is and what, what policy should be. It's a terrible place, though, to build a business. The European Commission has recognized this. At a briefing recently in, in DC, someone asked a European Commission representative, why hasn't Europe succeeded? And his answer was, well, the problem maybe is a lack of ambition and talent. In other words, the problem, he, he claimed, wasn't the EU or its laws or its regulations, it was Europeans themselves. I was reminded of what Bertolt Brecht, the great East German dissident, said, that would it not be simpler for the government to dissolve the people and elect another? Well, I don't think that the problem is Europeans, and neither should you. Europe produces plenty of bright, creative, and ambitious people. I meet them all the time, right here in New York and in San Francisco. They're everywhere. <laughs> But the best ones come here. That's what makes this country great. So if there's a problem in Europe, it's a brain drain. It's because the, the best and most ambitious and most creative people can't build the businesses they want in Europe. They can't make them succeed. What makes the United States great isn't Americans. It's our ability to draw foreigners. Half of the employees at tech companies in San Francisco are foreign. 71% in the Bay Area are foreign, and many of those are Europeans. They're coming here because this country offers them a framework that allows them to succeed in digital technology. Yes, of course Europeans succeed in other areas. They build great trains and great airplanes and great green technologies, but they struggle in digital technologies where disruption matters most, where the pace of innovation matters most, and where the regulatory framework has really crushed them. And this is not a new problem. This goes back in 2000. There was twice as much venture capital funding in the United States, 2005 to 2007, six times as much investment in internet platforms in Europe as in the United States. And this is not just about the big companies. That's what Ramesh has been talking about. This is about small companies. For, for companies under $5 million in funding in two, across 2000 to 2015, there was twice as much funding available in the US as in Europe, and four times for companies under $10 million. So the EU has talked about throwing money at the problem. That's not going to work. The problem is fundamentally about legal regimes, and it's about the, the underlying assumptions that those legal regimes rest on. The new EU president has announced that new technologies can never mean new values. But when those values are control and stability, those values become fatal to European success. 
What has made the United States successful is the values of openness and learning and experimentation. That's why people come here. Those are the secrets to American success. That's what we mean when we talk about permissionless innovation. In Europe, that's impossible. And let me give you a few quick examples as a lawyer. First and foremost, platform responsibility. Today's internet is about users. What internet users want is to be able to create content and share it with other users. Netflix and Spotify are great, but that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about being able to, to create content online, and European law holds platforms, websites responsible for essentially everything that their users say and do. The United States, we recognize that that's crazy. It's impossible to expect that websites can filter and monitor and be responsible for content the same way that newspapers monitor every letter to the editor. That law has made the single biggest difference uh, between the United States and the rest of the world of anything. And unfortunately, the Europeans are only going to make their law worse. Under their approach, something like Wikipedia could never have gotten off the ground. We see the same thing on copyright. Spotify has succeeded in Europe because, in part, European copyright law hasn't been that different in the past from the U.S., but it's about to get a heck of a lot worse. You might have heard about the European Union cracking down, demanding that news sites have the right to, to decide whether you can link to their stories and whether you, they have to charge for, for payment. They're also requiring mandating, uh, filtering uh, for websites. These are mandates that only the very largest tech companies can, can actually support. These are not things the smallest companies can do. And these things have been framed explicitly in terms of trade war. This is about control, about making sure that European companies don't have to change and adapt. The same is true for, for privacy, right? The GDPR isn't really about privacy. It's about that framework of control and stabilities. It's a system of controls that the biggest companies, yes, the biggest companies have adapted. They can manage those things. The smallest companies can't, and neither can nonprofits. In my research, I came across genealogy.net, the largest German genealogical site. For 23 years, volunteers provided genealogical information to anybody who wanted it, but GDPR came along and they had to shut down. They could not do business, a nonprofit non-business, of offering their services volunteers in the world of GDPR. That's the kind of, of response that the market has shown to European regulation. Churches have stopped sending out bulletins to their users. The first privacy case in Europe to have criminal penalties back in 2003 was about a church member sending out a bulletin to her email, uh, her email distribution list. And finally, the European Court of Justice could literally shut off data flows between the United States and Europe overnight. What is that if not a war? It is a trade war, it is about the European mentality of control, and it's killing Europe. Thank you, Baron Soka. Our final speaker on the resolution, Europe has declared war on American tech companies, Maritza Schake. She's a former MEP and international policy director now at Stanford Cyber Policy Center. Ladies and gentlemen, Maritza Schake. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Marietje. I come from Europe and I come in peace. <laughs> I thought I should repeat this with the very, very strong proposition that Europe has declared war on American tech companies. Now, I don't know how many of you have recently spoken to people who've actually experienced war. In Iraq, in Syria, and in too many places all over the world, we see bloodshed, violence, refugees, displacement, rape, and the worst kinds of atrocities that we can imagine. And I'm very glad to say that Europe and the United States are not at war. In fact, we're living in peace. 
Thanks to the coalition that we've had since World War II, we live in peace. Now, does it mean that we always agree on everything? No, but words have meaning, and let's not throw big words like war around frivolously. We have too many people throwing around big words too lightly, uh, if you ask me. Now, generally, and I do think that that's where war in this context is important, a lot of Europeans, people that I served alongside with in the European Parliament, have vivid memories of what war actually means and what repression means. I had the honor to serve next to anti-communism resistance heroes who, in their own lifetime, have served prison sentences for expressing themselves freely and who have been subject to surveillance by Stasi and other kinds of state intelligence surveillance. So, is it any wonder that with that experience in Europe, people are sensitive, not to say allergic, to the abuse of power, intrusion and surveillance, also through technological and ever more sophisticated means, of their private communications and their everyday moves. The right to privacy in Europe is a fundamental right, and that also means that governments have to protect their citizens from abuse. Now, the way I think of regulation is not against American tech companies or against much at all, but really for protecting fundamental rights, for safeguarding security, including cybersecurity. Safeguarding fair competition, having some rules of the road in the economy. Making sure that AI doesn't disrupt our societies in ways that discriminates. Discrimination is illegal offline, it should not be legal, uh, legal online or tolerated online. Now, is it always easy? Do all Europeans agree that this is the way forward and this is how we should deal with tech companies? No. There are heated debates, political debates, big disagreements, lobby efforts, debates like the one we're having tonight before votes on amended laws are taken. And that is how it should be in a democracy. But suggesting that tech companies are facing a declaration of war from the European side is like suggesting that child safety measures are a declaration of war against Chinese toy companies, or that medicine safety and other health requirements are a declaration of war against Swiss pharma companies, or that airbag and other kinds of car requirements that make you and I safe when we go on the road are a declaration of war against Japanese car makers. Can it get any more preposterous? This is not to say that Europeans should decide for Americans what they should do. I believe members of Congress, to the extent that they can work it out together, the FTC, the FCC, and other democratically mandated regulators should decide for you, for Americans, what the proper rules should be. I was looking online before we started this debate, and it turns out that the FTC took a product off the market. It's a product that allows spouses to spy on each other, but it was so poorly protected that the FTC said, no more until better safety measures are taken. I hope none of you are subject to these kinds of services, but they're available freely on the market and that is allowed in this country. I think there's awakening up uh, here in America that a lot of people think there might be room for more oversight and more rules for the digital economy. I follow this debate with great interest. I also note that when antitrust 
measures are announced, tech companies are hiring lobbyists for millions and millions of dollars, and up to 75% of lobbyists hired come from congressional offices that will be directly involved in regulating on the antitrust. This revolving door, it's your American freedom to work that way, that is uh, up to you. But similarly, it is up to European lawmakers, those who are democratically mandated, to regulate for the kinds of safeguards of fundamental rights and freedoms, for a fair economy, uh, against discrimination and whatnot in the way that they see fit. And in fact, the EU has inspired Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, who called for privacy laws mirroring European ones. Mark Zuckerberg called for content moderation regulations so that they don't have to make those decisions. Brad Smith of Microsoft also called for regulating facial recognition technologies. And actually, Microsoft is an interesting example. It's faced strong antitrust measures and is still one of the largest tech companies in the world. So, uh, to conclude, I would say it is absolutely necessary that democratically mandated lawmakers regulate for the protection of very, very elementary freedoms and rights of people, fair competition in our economies. It has nothing to do with the atrocities of war, and I'm very happy because I stand here with a big transatlantic heart. Vote against the motion, Europe has declared war on American tech companies, and let's continue the debate on how we can do regulation in a democratic way together, because in all of this debate, we haven't mentioned China that is actually developing a governance model of technology that goes against all the liberties and freedoms that we cherish in the free world. Thank you. Thank you, Marita Shake. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is Europe has declared war on American tech companies. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly, and they also take questions from me, and in a little bit of time, uh, questions from you, our live audience here in New York. We've heard the team on this resolution, Europe has declared war on American tech companies. We've heard the team arguing for the resolution say that they are not against regulation. They don't think these companies are perfect, but they say that uh, the, Europe has built uh, over many years a regime of regulation that is well-intentioned but is misguided and has led to stifling of uh, innovation and basically success, and that in response to that, Europe has now set out to crush the competition presented by American companies by imposing the same sorts of regulations on them. In other words, they are talking about the motivation behind the regulation. After Europe blew it, this was Europe's way of catching up. They say that Europe is a terrible place to do business and that the motivation behind these regulations is about control, not supporting or providing uh, conducive environments for the success of American businesses there. Um, the team arguing against the resolution, Marita Shake and Ramesh Srinivasan, they are um, saying that, um, first of all, they, they make the argument that they don't think war is an appropriate metaphor for the, the state of play, uh, but they say that the motivation behind the regulation is not to control or crush U.S. companies, but actually to um, respond to a demand by the public, that the public has serious concerns about privacy and other forms of abuse by large companies, of which they cited several examples. They say that the regulations actually are liberty-based, that they are in place, uh, built uh, with the intention to facilitate business, but also to facilitate it in a way that is ethical and responsible to uh, social concerns. So before we move on, I wanna say something about the choice of the word war. It was our choice. 
um, this team rose to the occasion of using that metaphor. I don't think that we are going to hold you responsible to compare what you're talking about to the atrocities of war. I think it's good that you brought that point up. I think what the point we're trying to say, and you actually made this point in your opening statement, Rosalind, is that you believe the motivations of the regulation are, in fact, to crush and destroy the competition. That in that sense, the regulations are not benign, but they're actually motivated by a desire that goes beyond competition. So having cleared that up, I wanna, I wanna actually start by going to you, Baron, and there's a point you made that puzzled me and how it fits into your argument. You were saying that the regulations in Europe have driven Europe's best talent to Silicon Valley, which sounds to me like European regulations are doing American companies a favor. So how, can you please pack that into your argument? Sure. Well, in any war, there are always refugees, right? So Europe's, <laughs> Europe's best and brightest have come here, and we welcome them with open arms. But look, um, this is a war, right? Clausewitz said that war is the continuation of politics by other means. We have trade wars. This country, unfortunately, is engaged in a series of self-defeating, moronic trade wars at the moment. Right? They're not trade wars that anyone in this room would support, just as I don't think that most Europeans support the, the war that I think that the European uh, regulatory establishment is engaging in, but they are engaging in that war nonetheless. And, and I wanna be clear about this. I, there, there's a variety of motives, right? We can never speak of Europe having a single uh, motive. Some people, some politicians are bringing antitrust cases because it's a great way to make headlines. They sound good and they advance their careers. They get enormous uh, settlements, you know, $5 billion claiming that Google doesn't compete with Apple in the operating system market, right? That's crazy. We all know that, that they, of course they compete, right? What I think this war is really about is not so much crushing and destroying American companies, it's trying to tame them and make them pliant. And, and in fact, our uh, opponents have made this argument for us. They have just told you that all the biggest companies in the United States are rushing, are falling over themselves to say, yes, of course, we love what Europe's doing. Of course, we can, we can implement those regulations because they can. I'm not concerned about that. Well, let me, let, let me break in, because uh, you made a number of points. I want to let Ramesh respond to some of what you just said. Yeah, sure. So a couple, couple of quick points. First of all, the web, uh, you may not know this, the web was actually created in Switzerland by a British person. So you want to talk about some sort of innovation that has blown our world over, the web comes out of the European Union. A second point is that almost every major technology company has a substantial set of offices or employees in the European Union itself. A big reason why uh, so much of you know, these technology companies have emerged is of course because Americans are brilliant and wonderful and there's a great environment for that, but also because of the early adopter situation. But Ramesh, to, to, yes. can you be responsive to the point sure. that, that sure. Baron was making, that it's really about control, it's about taming, it's about bringing these companies down uh, okay, down so, a notch. so if that were the case, if, if what I read from Mark Zuckerberg was actually his, his you know, if, if, that were, if, if, if that was actually the point that he was trying to make, uh, he, would be, he would be out as CEO the next day, right? Because Mark Zuckerberg's goal is one goal primarily, right? Which is to grow his company, allow his company to expand. So what Mark Zuckerberg is clearly identifying, which we also see, and that was the point I tried to make by 
by the, by the sort of stated policies and behaviors to some extent of every American tech company is to try to attempt to develop some balance at this point. And that balance is consistent with the EU regulation. So my point, again, is that this, this argument is really, the, the, these leaders of tech companies are not doing this because they are tamed. They're doing this because they're realizing there's a pathway forward whereby they can avoid all of these huge problems that have emerged in the last several okay, years. Okay, so Rosalind, what we're hearing your opponent saying is that Bottom line, Ramesh is arguing that the regulations, you're not quite putting this away, but are doing these companies a favor. They're, 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 they're giving them assistive situations. Right. So if we accept that they're profit-maximizing companies, I would be very concerned as a policymaker when any tech company comes to my door and says, please regulate me, because there's a profit motive behind it. This is a touchstone concept in the economics literature called regulatory capture. Regulation is created by industry and it's operated for its benefit. There is nothing that the EU would like better than to have maybe two or three large American tech companies which it lords over and controls all the little things and it's all going the way the EU wants for its five-year plan, rolling out this time at version number seven in the seventh month at the ninth hour and so on. That's how they want to do it. Now, Americans know it doesn't work that way, but we have this kind of history where government and industry makes an unholy alliance. Look at the Ma Bell Telephone Network, 1913, set up to say universal service. This meant that one company gets to control the market, and the government blessed that. So all of that history over the, the 20th century, it was so bad, the prices were so high, the innovation was so deterred that the Department of the Justice had to break up the collusion between the FCC and the private company. And if you want a current example, look no further than California and all the fires. It's PG&E. It is a government publicly owned utility with oversight by the California Public Utilities Commission, which is literally causing fires. This is the court's decision. People are losing lives because these two entities collude. They cannot be held accountable because they're so tied closely together. So why couldn't that happen in Europe? I mean, why, why couldn't that happen to the benefit of the companies in Europe? Because your argument seems to be that the existence of the regulations is not to collude with the companies, but to crush the companies. Look, the Europeans are doing, doing what regulators do, which is to try to create tame, regulated enterprises. And it is to their advantage that there are only, if they can't have European companies, what they'd rather have is pliant companies with offices in Europe that do their bidding, rather than the messiness of having a long tail of medium-sized and small-sized companies. Those are the companies that I'm concerned about. Those are the companies that are not possible to build and launch in Europe. Okay, Marcia, you've been very patient. Jump in. Well, I've just been amused at the talk about collusion um, these days in the United States. But uh, back, back to the topic. The, the underlying assumption of the other team is that Silicon Valley is such an extraordinary success that Europeans are jealous up to a way that makes them aggressive, that has them declare war, and stop with no means to undermine this resounding success. Stop one second. That does sound to me like the argument that you're making. Is that... Uh, can can you say it, it one more time? I didn't hear it. Really? You, I, I, <laughs> no, <laughs> Let me continue. Where were you? Again. <laughs> Let me continue. Okay. I will explain. So I think the, the assumption <laughs> is that, you know, European lawmakers, regulators are going after the, the sickeningly jealous-making success of Silicon Valley. Let me ask the audience, how many of you have recently been in San Francisco or Silicon Valley? One I just the, want the, those who are not here but only listening to know that it looked like about 20 percent, 25 percent of the audience? 
That will be my number. Yeah, at least. I think anyone who goes to to Silicon Valley, the heart of tech development in the United States these days, will see shocking homelessness, extraordinary inequality. If this is the paradise that Europeans are allegedly jealously looking at, I see more of a paradise lost. And the point is this, if you look at, at bigger and better companies, Fine, there are a couple of huge companies that are very successful, but what is the impact for small and medium-sized enterprises? What, what, will, what will mom and pop stores think about, about Amazon? Amazon is not that big in Europe. This is much more uh, a company that has impact on uh, your neighborhoods, your delivery of services, etc. It is indeed a huge financial success, but I think it is important to look at society-wide impacts. I think there is more of that in Europe not so much against American companies. If you look at antitrust, there have been fines against Gazprom and Google alike against Microsoft and milkmakers. It is not about going after American tech companies. It is about preserving balance, preserving some rules, and making sure that our system, which is different from yours, continues to work and that certain principles are not disrupted, no matter what the technological innovation. Rosalind. So I think we, uh, we're trying to make clear that the war is a symbolic one, it's a political war, but the point that we want to make, it is transparent if you want to find out for yourself. It's on the European Commission's website, the European scoreboard. What we care about is the new business in Europe, the smaller, medium-sized enterprise. And you can look at data going back to the year 2000. There's hundreds of data points, but what you see in every single European country is that the small business may start, but it has a very hard time growing. They don't invest, they don't buy information technology, they don't sell outside their borders. And this is even a problem in the Nordic country. I live in Copenhagen. It's one of the, the leaders. I mean, Netherlands is another case. But even then, the regulations adopted in the European Union make it so expensive to do so that they just don't do it. But your it's opponent is saying that the that standard is applied as well to European companies and to Russian companies and to Chinese companies as it is to American companies. Therefore, it's not, they're not targeting American companies. I think that's what you're saying, right? Yep. So can you no, I would, not, I would say not, because if you look at the networks in Europe, because the telecom sector was so overregulated, it drove them into the arm of the Chinese. So now you have um, the, the networks are built by Chinese equipment, which has no safety features. They're operating in brazen defiance of the GDPR. And I'm going around to European government saying, please take out this Huawei equipment that, that the, they're, they're making us all unsafe. And they're like saying, no, no, you know, it, it's, it's fine. It's no problem. You know, so, so what so I'm trying to say, it's, it's selective. It's a selective who they decide is going to be the bad person. Let, let me bring in Ramesh. No, okay, okay Maricha. I mean, I'll just, I'll just speak to one point, and then Maricha is going to go directly at this. It's as if, this, so, so two points, actually. One is that we can imagine how, and this is actually starting to occur in various places since the GDPR has been passed, how the GDPR can actually influence a business ecosystem to emerge in relation to these technology companies and these new policies. For example, companies that might emerge to help people with protecting their data, companies that might emerge in the civil society space, nonprofits to kind of help people understand their digital rights and surveillance issues and privacy issues. It's as if the motion basically says that if you, that, that the only way to be at, not at war with American technology companies is to blindly accept 
365 surveillance, behavioral manipulation, algorithmic bias. But that's a, that's and an extreme statement of what the motive. But the, what the, what the, the resolution doesn't go that far. Right, but if you take it to its logical extreme, it could be that, right? Because this is the. But I don't think your opponents are suggesting taking it that it is taking it to that logic. The resolution itself. Frank. Okay. Well, look, I want to ask you one question sure. that came from the other side, and, sure. and this is this. It was brought up in in Barron's opening. The, the, the ability to manipulate data, to experiment with it, to see what happens when you put this together with this, is, ha, has been, for better or worse, the business model of these big companies. That's what they do. And they don't like to have somebody tell them, you, you can't do this, you can't do that, you have to check ahead of time. They don't know what the outcome might be, they want to they wander. That this is what they do as a core thing, and that the regulations, and they do it better than European companies are doing. So by targeting that sort of thing, by requiring permissions and, and putting, putting limitations on what they can do with data, that it goes directly at the business models of these companies. And I want us to, just to take on that, sure. even if to hit it out of the ballpark, but I want to see what you say. Shall I or Marie? Either, either okay, one okay. of you, yeah. I mean, for me, sort of, uh, for, for me, that's sort of a, a potential statement of reality in terms of what the companies are about, but that's not the only way in which they have to be, right? And that actually, and, and for example, several folks in my new book, Beyond the Valley, I interviewed several senior executives at the big tech companies, and they are currently doing A-B testing, which means you kind of test things out with different kinds of approaches toward your users, and they say, if we want to do some disclosure to our users about what we might be collecting on, about them, or why you might see what you see, for example, with Google searches or algorithms that you see displaying content on Facebook, we want to see whether that can actually also maximize our returns as well. So if you argue that the business model is, is sort of static in this sense, that actually doesn't describe what these how these companies operate. Okay, Baron, you've been very patient. Yeah, this is not just about selective enforcement, although I think that does happen, right? We've talked a little bit about China. It is really worth noting here that the European Union has, uh, has waged this war effectively against American companies, but not Chinese companies, right? Chinese companies are companies that actually give their data directly to the Chinese government, the most repressive government in the world, right? And yet it's the United States that is on the verge of having data flows cut off by a decision of the European Court of Justice. There's some degree of selectivity here, but that's not primarily what I'm concerned about. In my view, the, the fact that these are American companies that we're primarily talking about is somewhat incidental because the real issue is that the, the ecosystem of regulation in Europe is based on these values of control and stability. They're not able to deal, yes, of course there are real problems, right? But they're not able to deal with those problems in a flexible dynamic way. Their response again and again is control. And I'll just give you just two quick examples. We've heard a few times the other side talk about discrimination. Algorithmic discrimination is a real problem. There are real patterns of discrimination in the world that we need to study and understand. One of the most important patterns of discrimination is how judges decide cases. Are they making decisions based on racial bias, for example, right? We want to know that. Everyone in this room wants to know if there's a racist judge out, out there. And yet in France, that is illegal, subject to criminal sanctions. You are not allowed to use what is called judicial analytics because the French think that that's going to corrupt their, their platonic system of justice. That's the kind of control that I'm talking about. I'll give you a second quick example. Right now, at, at Gay Pride this year in Paris, the number one issue that every lesbian in that, in that parade marched about was the fact that the French government prohibits, not just will not fund, but prohibits 
anyone who is not a heterosexual couple from getting in vitro fertilization, right? It has nothing to do, with, to do with digital technology, but it's an example of the mentality of control, that the state should decide when particular technologies should be used. That's what I'm talking about. That's the war. It's a war against the, the, the unplanned, against the open society, by people who claim that they are defenders of the open society. Let me go to the other side, and I, Marisha, we haven't heard from you, but it looks like Ramesh wants Please, to speak, Marisha, but you, you, okay. you sort it out. And, well, and, and Baron had a long run, and this yeah. side actually has had one more opportunity to speak than you, so you can go do two in a row if you can be brief. Well, I'll try to stick to the topic first and foremost. And what always happens when you're someone from Europe that's invited to speak somewhere that you're almost made to defend everything that happens in Europe, and that's, that's not what I'm going to do. I just spent 10 years in the European Parliament arguing with my colleagues, arguing against a number of measures of the European Commission, a lack uh, of, of awareness of the national security risks of, for example, Huawei technology. So I'm not here to defend all, and especially not French policies, mind you, uh, <laughs> what, is, what is happening in Europe. But I want to pick up on, a, on an important point that the other team has made, and that is that there is some kind of selection and a specific focus on American companies. That is not at all the case. The approach is principled. And the reason why a number of American companies are in view is actually that they are so successful. If we're listening to the, the other, other uh, side arguing, it sounds as if you know, these companies have no opportunities to do business in Europe, that they're being chased away, and that it is all very, very barren over there. No, the European market is still one of the major markets for all the tech companies that we mentioned, large and small. And I actually think it is an extraordinary success of Silicon Valley's entrepreneurship, of the ecosystem of acquiring capital, talent. I hope it stays that way with new immigration kinds of debates, etc., etc. But at the same time, I recognize also in the United States a wake-up call that it is not all fantastic and great for everybody, the bigger these companies get with the little oversight, especially over algorithms and other kinds of more and more uh, used methodologies. And so I believe that the question also in America is not so much whether there will be regulation, that, that bridge has been crossed. The question will be what kind of regulation. And I argue that we need to work between America and Europe together on a democratic model, because while we're sitting, sitting here arguing the preposterous notion that there's a war from Europe going on against the United States, China is the laughing third that is gaining more and more power as we are in disagreement and not focusing on what the actual challenge is for our rights and freedoms also in the digital world. Bravo. So in my case, I just want to add that uh, for all of you who have been to Europe, and I would guess that's a substantial number of you, this isn't, the, this isn't a place of massive authoritarianism that we're entering into. This is not a place where, we, where people are controlled, they're herded. This isn't you know, the handmaid's tale we're talking about here. This is, a, this is, this is a, another experiment in democracy, another experiment in free market capitalism. And in fact, many aspects of control, if you want to apply them to the United States, also apply here. Uh, for example, with uh, pro-choice and pro-life kinds of issues, or other issues as well. As far as this point that Barron made about 
courtrooms, what has actually been applied here in the United States, you may not believe this. Look at the reporting by ProPublica on this. We have been deploying algorithmic AI machine learning systems to advise judges on the possibility, like minority report style, on the probability that someone might commit a future crime or commit a future violent crime. And again and again and again, we're finding this blind technological deployment that is absent of the voices of people who might be vulnerable in such a situation is criminalizing people of color and black people. We see the same deployment with automated technologies and AI technologies and human resources work against women for science and engineering jobs. Ramesh, I'm going I'm yes. to jump in, not because I don't think this is an important topic, but it's, okay. it's actually sounds like something that we'll probably take on sure. a debate down the road, but sure. we're getting a little bit off this question of whether that we're exploring of whether Europe, about Europe's motives and, 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 and methods. So I want to move to audience questions at this point. Um, and uh, normally I go directly to the general audience, but tonight we're very fortunate to have two people in the audience who, are, who, who know this topic and who live this topic, and we want to go to them for questions first. So I want to start with Jeff Jarvis. And Jeff, uh, if you could stand up, and Michael will be brought to you. The, the, the both of you are front row center. Um, Jeff is a professor at the Craig Newmark School of Journalism at uh, CUNY, and he is also an alumnus of our debates. You've debated with us twice. You're a terrific debater. Let's see how you are as putting together a very short, terse question on topic that moves <laughs> things forward. It is early days. It's 1475 in Gutenberg time. What we're seeing is protectionism, as Rosalind said, of major old institutions of old companies like publisher cashing in their political capital to get regulation to protect them. The right to be forgotten erases history in a land that should know better than to erase history. The new copyright regulations deleterious to freedom of expression, my question. Isn't it hubris of the Europeans to think uh, that they can um, Jeff, can you back up? I'm hearing a microphone problem. Is anybody else hearing that? Because yes. we really want to have your question captured on the broadcast, so maybe I don't think it's anything you're doing, but just give it one more shot at the question part. I know, I know. Okay. Nice try. <laughs> <laughs> it's early days. Regulation thus far has been the product no, of... No, thank you very much. <laughs> That was, that, was all, that was all recorded perfectly. So go for the question. <laughs> Isn't it hubris of Europeans to think that they can define and limit and regulate the net without a sense of the precedent that is being set even in Europe? It's fine if Netherlands regulates us, but what about Turkey? What about Poland? What about Hungary? What about our own government in the United States? Who is to say that government is our best protector of our newfound overdue freedoms? Or to put it more provocatively, who died and made Europe the protector of the world and the future? Okay, that was a little bit debatey, that question, but, <laughs> but I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pass it. So, uh, do you wanna take it, Marita? Look, I think that there are definitely political battles between incumbents or industries with a lot of power. Uh, I've been very involved in pushing back against the kinds of proposals that the publishers, but also the music industry that you may find very powerfully in this country, uh, you know, records, record industry, movie industry are very, very American dominated, very, very heavily pushing for the kinds of copyright protections that do not benefit uh, newcomers and, and tech companies. So uh, I think that this, is, that this is not so much a European-centered 
discussion. This is a discussion that you will see in any society where there is disruption of old industries and the question what comes, uh, what comes in their place. It is always easier for incumbent industries to lobby against a new regulation that's going to be disadvantageous uh, to them. And I think you've, you've seen similar debates, for example, on copyright here. I don't know how many of you remember, but there was this uh, Stop Online Piracy Act uh, and, and similar proposals here. So um, again, I think this underlines that some of the discussions we have, questions about how do existing laws apply in the analog and in the digitally connected world? How do we deal with certain disruptions in a way that it doesn't exclude all kinds of people, whether it be minorities or small and medium-sized enterprises? How do we deal with this in, in I, open I, societies I, I, and I, democracies together? This is not America versus Europe, but I, this is something that we, we have in our societies. Sorry. No, you don't have to be sorry. I, I'm sorry to, for interrupting. I, I, I just, in, in the interest of moving on to different topics, you, that, that was a point that you've landed several times, so I wanted to let the other yeah. side respond a little bit. They but should. you're very courteous of me, you to apologize to me for interrupting you. And now, <laughs> Rosalind, I just want to ask you, to, it sounded to me like Jeff's question was kind of um, in support of your side. He was sharing your outrage and indignity. Sure. Well, thank you, Jeff, for the question. I think you, you, you do bring up an important point, and, and, and it's a fair one. I had a, um, quite an honor to earn my PhD in a, in a Danish university where I studied the multi-stakeholder model, which I would say is probably the most important contribution of the modern left to the, our policy discourse, to our policy capabilities. And one of the best things about the internet was we use multi-stakeholder model to manage the growth and the emergence of the internet. And I studied internet regulation across 50 countries and looking at all the different instrumentation. And I learned that there's a spectrum of different kinds of measures that you can use. And if you want to be intelligent or scientific about it, you'd actually test the different measures and see which one provides the best outcome. And, you know, quite interestingly, multi-stakeholder works very well because it allows different stakeholders to come together. They can exchange information. They can learn, and the system can evolve. It's not static. Now, all of the things that are coming out of the EU today, unfortunately, it doesn't have to be this way. And, of course, Denmark actually used multi-stakeholder. Nordic countries are awesome at it. They are so brilliant at doing it. But I compared this kind of bottom-up approach to what you would see in maybe Holland or France, top-down command and control. Okay? When you have emergent technologies, you need to have things allow to, allowed to be tried. They have to be experimented. Then you have to test them. Now, we do have large platforms today. That doesn't mean that they get a pass, but there are new questions around artificial intelligence. If you read the GDPR explicitly, it's illegal to do that in European Union today. You can make that argument. So, what I would say is look at the spectrum of options, test them like a scientist would test them, make randomized controlled trials, and then make your decision. Okay, we, I, again, I feel like we're, we just really departed and took a left turn on the topic that we're discussing. It's all very interesting, but at the end of the evening, you folks need to vote on what you think Europe is doing to these American companies. So, Anu, Bradford, I'd like you to rise. Um, and ask a question that's going to succeed in getting us to debate on that point. Uh, Anu, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Um, you're a professor and director of the European Legal Studies Center at Columbia Law. You're also working on a new book. The title is The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World, relevant to our topic tonight. What's your perfectly constructed and extremely brief question <laughs> that gets the debaters to elucidate more the question of whether Europe is at war with American tech companies? 
So thank you. So I guess my uh, question is who is declaring the war if there is one against the US tech companies? So could we rather not say that there may be a civil war that the American companies are fighting on the European territory? Or what Berin mentioned, the foreign talent that sustain the Silicon Valley's innovation base, the war that the American government has declared against letting that foreign talent further migrate into the United States. Wow, that nailed it. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm gonna take it. Uh, Baron, do you want to take that? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I should have made this point more clear. I don't think this is as simple as the U.S. versus Europe. I think a lot of what's happening in Europe is that European policy is being weaponized by American companies against each other. The big tech companies are perfectly happy to have the GDPR as a regulatory barrier to entry. It costs millions of dollars to comply. Microsoft, Google, Facebook, of course they can handle those burdens. Smaller companies can't. In the United States, of course, we would love to have more European uh, contributing to our, to our economy. I'd be all in favor of that. I just want to give you two examples. So, can, you get, um, can you make it one? SOPA. So uh, Maricha mentioned the Stop Online Pri Privacy Act, uh, Piracy Act of 2012, right? That law would have been draconian. It would have looked a lot like the copyright directive that's just passed in Europe. And the difference fundamentally between the United States and Europe is that we stopped that law because that law was fundamentally inconsistent with the American values of openness and experimentation. And in Europe, it has been controversial. I'm gonna give Europeans credit, but that is now the law of the land. The values of control and stability triumph. It's not because Europe is authoritarian. It's because incumbent industries with, in with established interests manage to continue to control the regulatory apparatus. Sometimes they're European, sometimes they're American, but the war that they're waging is essentially a war against the messy, unplanable future in which, but that's frankly, not, but those that, companies that, are that, all American. But that, uh, oh, because the companies are American. Yes, okay. th this is the critical point. To so get back to the debate, so here, here look. <laughs> Why do that? This, yeah. okay. The critical point here is that Euro European policymakers are essentially waging war against digital disruption, against the dynamism that has defined the digital revolution for 20 years. And on the other side of that debate, it just happens that all of the companies essentially that they are, that, that, whose burden this is falling upon are American because it's here in the United States that those companies have been able to take off. So you're saying it's not an anti-American animus, it's an anti-success animus. And it is, it is, it ends up being a war against American tech companies. I don't think it's because... And, 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 and Rosalind, the other part of a new Bradford's question, who declared war? Who's declared war on the U.S.? Yes. So, and, and again, we're understanding that we're not meaning war in the very technical right. sense. So the thing is, we, we, didn't, we could have a whole evening discussing all the, the, the countries, the various levels of government, the different policy actors. You know, it would be interesting. But there are, there are many different... Um, you know, there are many different actors. You have the new president in her manifesto. You have, uh, for example, um, you have very strong policy actors as activists, you know, saying let's dismantle the companies. And they're serious about that. They, they don't like commerce. They want the companies to be destroyed. You have a guy like Paul Nemitz in the European Commission. You have various members of parliament. I don't say that they speak in a uniform voice and they're not monolithic. You have many different nation states with different particular views, but there's a lot of grievances and, and so it's, when, when you have these various, what unites people, unfortunately, under those circumstances is a war. And to say these problems are through our economy is because of the big tech industry, that's a great way to, peop, to get people to pay attention to you and to vote for you. Um, so, I want to go to whoever wants to speak on the other side. You, sure, I'll go. It first. looks like you both want to go. But yeah. since they had two in a row, I'll let you. Okay. But, but again, oh. we want to move on to more questions. We have about nine minutes left, so if you could each okay. be 45 okay. seconds. Yep. 
Um, me? Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, th this term disruption, this is just sort of a, a term that we kind of bandy about, but what does that actually mean? There are so many European technology companies that are innovative in a range of different manners. I worked for multiple years for a machine learning AI company. Guess what? It ended up being bought by an American company. This is an example of the kind of collaboration that can occur across borders. I think most importantly, I just want to make the point again that the internet is a global phenomenon. As different technology companies offer services, platforms, et cetera, and they, uh, and they approach different markets, is it not appropriate for people in those markets to say, hey, here are the ways in which we can work with you. Here are the ways in which we can reach your customers. This is not a phenomenon, to Barron's point, of just about Facebook, though Facebook is totally agreeable to these policies, as I pointed out earlier. This is a point about having the ability not to protect, but to work with extraterritorial companies in different types of manners. This is about diplomacy and communication in this manner. Marija. I think the implication is that when you suggest that any initiative to regulate is a declaration of war from the European side, the question is, what does an unregulated space look like. And I believe that Americans are waking up to this. You, you only need to look at the debates uh, between Democratic uh, presidential candidates to hear a number of proposals of how to sort of curb the excessive and unregulated, maybe libertarian kind of way in which the tech companies are disrupting various aspects of this society. Today, 47 Attorneys general, I'm talking about American state attorneys general, have joined their investigations into antitrust uh, practices by, by Facebook. This has nothing to do with Europe. Maybe Europe was a little bit ahead in understanding the disruption, maybe because it, it confronted the European system of, for example, social welfare and the rights uh, to privacy in a, in a slightly different way than it did American principles. But the idea that any regulatory initiative is an attack against the tech companies is something that this company, of this country, excuse me, uh, regulators and politicians in this country are not accepting it. I want to go to another audience question, but first, I, I do feel that you're mischaracterizing the extremity of your opponent's argument. So let me just ask you, are you saying that any regulation amounts to an act of war? Just a yes or no? Absolutely no. not. Okay, I, I didn't think that you were. Um, let's go to some audience questions. If you raise your hand, I'll call on you. You've seen some questions modeled and write down in the front and wait for the mic. By the way, um, if you can hold the mic like that, the, there's an antenna at the bottom. I think that might have been what was interfering before if your hand touches that. And, and can you tell us your name? Hi, my name's Georgia. Um, I'm from Australia, so just another country to throw into the mix here. Um, uh, what I want to get to is a point that um, I actually made before about the idea of regulating for European citizens or regulating against companies, because although the motion talks about companies, what are companies for if not to serve us, the people? It's not just about the big uh, tech companies and who works for them. So I kind of just wanted to bring it back to people here and what would be better for us in this situation and how should we take that into regard when it comes to these different policies? Let me take that first to Ramesh. Um, I, could you repeat that question briefly? Could you repeat the yeah, question? Please. Sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know you were probably distracted, but I prefer yeah, that, that you do it. Cut yeah. Out briefly. yeah. Um, who, uh, I want to bring it back to the people, so not talking about the actual tech companies or the people who work for them, but that the tech companies should be in service of us. So what is better for us? Is Absolutely. it better to be, for these tech companies to be regulated? Um, and this is the us, both citizens in the US. And could we rephrase it? Could we rephrase it? Would it be better for the users if, in fact, Europe 
succeeds in crushing these companies, which is this side's premise, and then we'll <laughs> take it to the other side, which refutes that premise. Well, obviously the answer is going to be You're no. So never a mind. Debating it. question. Now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so absolutely, what the European Union has has been putting forward is just an example of common sense balance, right? It's sort of I have argued in you know in my in my own personal work in my new book Beyond the Valley for a digital bill of rights, a balanced digital world, right? As we see privatized technologies that we don't understand, we don't understand what's being gathered about us, we don't understand how that's being monetized, we don't, we don't, re we don't even realize that our credit card records can be bought and sold. That's a place of invisibility which can open itself to having very little control, which can also open itself to all of these problems we're starting to face. So what the European Union is doing is just leading in a way that in my mind is pro-innovation, is consistent with uh, tech uh, branding, right? Big tech branding at least in a way that balances things, that is good for consumers, good for small businesses, good for big tech companies. Let me take George's question again to, to try to frame it in terms of the, what we're debating in the resolution to your opponent. So I, what I heard from Ramesh is his argument that the regulation, the motivation behind the regulation is to do right by the customers. You're arguing that the motivation behind the regulation is to punish American companies for their success. That, that, that you, you need to give them room to catch up. So what about their argument that actually the motivation behind the regulations, the whole reason they exist, is not, is not over a matter of competition and trying to create advantages, but is to do right by European users? I, I think the fundamental motivation is not punishing Americans. It's fear of the unknown and of, of people doing things differently, right? This is not about Europe over-regulating. This is about the fact that Europe effectively does not have a digital tech sector. That's the problem, right? If you get to the point where you don't have startups able to succeed, if, if, if all of your people leave, if small businesses can only succeed by being acquired and then moving to the United States, if the German genealogical volunteer group that I mentioned, an enormous volunteer organization has to shut down, if a thousand news, American news sites can't provide service to, G, to, to Europe because of the GDPR, you're doing regulation wrong. Right? You're no longer protecting users, you are making it impossible to provide service. That's what I'm describing as a war against technology, against the future, and against change. It doesn't require anti-American bias. It's not that people are, are just jealous. It's that they, 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 are, they, they keep gripping the wheel harder. When what they really need to do is realize that, yeah, there are problems, but we need to work those out as we go. And the Obama administration, I think, had a pretty good approach to doing that. It was a multi-stakeholder approach. It was solidly an approach of the left, but it would have, been, would have been very different on privacy. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this resolution. Europe has declared war on American tech companies. We have time for one more question, and Rosalind hasn't spoken in a while. Does somebody have a question that lives naturally in Rosalind's territory? Hi, I'm I, we just need to get a mic to you. Hi, Rosalind. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Um, I, still, I still don't understand, and I know we're supposed to be very careful about the war metaphor, but since it's in the resolution, uh, what counts as an act of war? So we've thrown around the word resolution, I mean, uh, uh, regulation a lot. Um, I'll give you just one example how I, as um, a consumer, was influenced by some European regulation, even using the Internet in the United States. So I'm a regular user of Twitter, compulsive, obsessive, lifelong user of Twitter. 
And, uh, and um, I was getting, like a lot of people who are disinhibited by Twitter, um, I was making incendiary statements and hearing back in rape language and Nazi language. I, I, I need you to get to your question. Okay. Um, so Germany instituted something where uh, the tech company's Twitter was fined $6 million, something like that, for every 15 minutes that uh, Nazi statements stood. As soon as that happened, I moved to virtual Germany. I set my location for Bad Wild Bad Germany on Twitter, and I've been free of Nazi language and rape language for two years. Um, I can't say I feel especially inhibited. I don't know how innovation was cut down because of that, and I don't know how that could possibly constitute an act of war. So, well, good for you that you could move with your feet, and you have followed your uh, bliss to go to a place where you're happier. Okay, no, I thought you said that you moved to Germany. Okay, so. <laughs> I, I, I want to clear so, up for the people who can't hear that yeah. Virginia Heffernan has clarified that she moved virtually. She, right. through a VPN. Yeah. yeah. So, right. So, for you, what, in terms of. Germany and so, Brooklyn. Some of the European laws violate America's First Amendment. So, whether you like that or not, the, any person who gets their First Amendment or company can take it to Supreme Court and it can be struck down. So that is the first challenge. Now, the, the, the thing that we're getting at is we accept that they're big companies. They need to have a higher standard. That's fair enough, okay? Twitter is one thing. We're talking about the bottom-up companies, the Twitter of tomorrow, or the church, or the, 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 the genealogy company that's bare and so Can they afford to have the standard you're talking about? If we look at California, on January 1, they are set to put their version of the GDPR, which in my opinion, is even more strict. It's going to cost California $70 billion, okay? The benefits are expected to be $5 billion. So the costs exceed the benefits by 14 times. And the peop the, those who are going to bear the cost are the 99% of companies in California that have less than 500 employees. Now, I talk to a lot of people on the left who think it doesn't matter that it costs money, right? But it may matter to someone who wants to start a business that won't be able to use data, that will have to find a different field, a different area. And, and I think that that's what some people want. They don't want to have innovation in data. For Baron, me, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, that, yeah. I, Baron, can, yeah, I really want to quickly. let the other side have a crack it, at this, and we're a little over time, so if you can do 15, 20 in, seconds. In your particular case, that's worked out well for you, but you're not seeing the unseen cost of that. Requiring platforms to take down content immediately means that they, have, they can't exercise any judgment in doing so, and anything that anyone might suggest might be harmful comes down. That means chilling a significant amount of speech. It makes it very difficult to operate a platform for discussion. Maybe Twitter can handle that. A lot of speech comes down. Certainly no one else can. And I'm, I'm concerned about all of the websites out there and their ability to operate, which they can't do in Europe. One more round from the against side. I'm giving Maricha all our time. For <laughs> Go this. for it. Yeah. Well, I think the question that, that you asked or the example that you gave of the requirement under German law to take down pro-Nazi content shows that this is not against American companies, but it's for safeguarding principles that are, that are typical for Germany, that are debated in Germany, but that come from a place that is legitimate. Not all Germans will agree that this is, that this is appropriate in 2019. Some Americans will like it, some Americans won't. I think that the point is that democratically elected representatives and governments have the legitimate right to look at how laws should apply, whether it's about tech companies or transport companies that are more traditional, whether it's companies from China or from the United States. And that is the whole point. What I see, and I've served in European Parliament for 10 years, I've been part of these heated debates of what the proper regulation is, how or how we should not regulate. I'm a 
a liberal in the European sense, which means I believe in not so much regulation, believe it or not, it would be easy to get a different impression this evening, but I do think that even the most open markets, even the most open societies require some rules of the road for fairness, for fundamental rights protection, and for preserving uh, freedoms. And that so concludes round two of our Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our resolution is Europe has declared war on American tech companies. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn again. They will be two minutes each. This is their last chance to prove to you which side is more persuasive because right after they speak and sit down, you're going to vote one more time and choose our winner. On to round three, closing statements. To make her closing statement against the resolution, Europe has declared war on American tech companies. And Rosalind, I'll give you a minute to get up there. Here is Rosalind Layton, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? So this is Langston Hughes, and he was living in this, this area of New York. And I love that poem so much because to me it represents all of the potential that we miss today. I would prefer the beautiful truth. Sorry, I, was, I would prefer an ugly lie over the beautiful truth. And in my day-to-day, -day, I come across so many policies that sound wonderful. Um, but my job is to test, do they actually do what they say? And I have seen so many things from the European Union saying, we're doing this for the people. But when I look at what the people say themselves in the statistics over time, that their trust in the European Union, in the actual policies, is at the lowest point. So I would say it may sound great, but we actually have to test and see what happens. So as uh, uh, Barron has, uh, he's alluded to the Prussian military theorist Clausewitz, who lived through the Napoleonic Wars. And at the time, it was quite glorious, you know, it is Sweden becoming to die and be glorious and, and whatnot. We know it's very terrible. Um, but there was a way to try to say, well, there's somehow a morality to it. And as you know, we didn't pick the, today's uh, framing, but we thought that it had an important symbolic meaning. And I would say that policymakers will frequently use this kind of uh, a rhetoric to say what they're doing because they'll use morality to describe the policy. And so in this case, the way that they've talked about the American tech companies, that they want to break them up, that they want to destroy them, that they want to put them under European control, it does amount to a type of war. And so I hope you've seen tonight that we've shown you that Europe has declared war on American tech companies. And I ask you to vote for this motion. Thank you, Rosalind Layton. And the position against the motion, Europe has declared war on American tech companies. Its first speaker summarizing will be Ramesh Srinivasan, who is professor at UCLA. Thank you all. It's been a pleasure to join you, pleasure to debate with you. I want to first bring to your attention a Vox poll that was done recently right here in the United States. Americans across political stripes, across economic classes, across geographic regions, all together support technology regulation. In what way? 
a far more powerful set of regulations breaking up technology companies than what we see proposed by the European Union. So what we actually see occurring here is this groundswell that is global in its scope, wanting a balanced world, wanting approaches like regulations that have been good for tech companies. Think about net neutrality as an example. That's the best friend to many big tech companies. So what we actually are right now arriving at is an incredibly important moment. My colleagues on the other side have argued that disruption is somehow a uniquely American phenomenon. They haven't been able to define clearly to me what disruption is. What if I argue that disruption is developing business models that are balanced, that agree with what almost every internet user now agrees with, that agrees with the world that is balanced, that agrees that small enterprises and small businesses that thrive on a secure and balanced climate is the best way to go. I have argued that branding, from from with branding and statements made by technology company magnates themselves are consistent. In fact, they are defining the EU regulations themselves. I have not seen any evidence that the European Union, in fact, my personal experience is the opposite, that the European Union is not a place for technology innovation. And in fact, the web itself comes from the European Union itself, much like the internet itself comes from public funding. Public-private partnerships are the way to go. There is no evidence that, that the European Union's regulations are harming businesses. There is no evidence that shows that European is some sort of defunct technological ecosystem. And that's why it's so important to understand that we need a balanced world in the image of our collective humanity. And that's why I urge you to vote against this motion that Europe is somehow declaring war on American tech companies. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ramesh Srinivasan. The resolution again, Europe has declared war on American tech companies. Here to make his closing statement in support of the resolution, Baron Soka, founder and president of Tech Freedom. As I said before, this is not about big companies. This is about small companies and nonprofits and everyone else who builds internet tools. Those tools do not take off in Europe. It's simply not possible. They have taken off here in the United States because we've had a legal environment that makes it possible to hold user content without being sued for everything your users do. We have a system of copyright law that doesn't drive you out of business. The European Union has made it and is making it even more impossible to build those services. This is not an argument against regulation. You don't have to be a libertarian to recognize that there's a war here. This is about the United States making innovation possible and Europe not. That's the war. It's not about picking necessarily on, your, on American companies. No doubt, if there were successful European companies, European regulators would strangle them too. And the fact is, they already have. They just strangled them in the crib, so you never saw them. The only ones that exist, the only ones that exist, are, exist because they're, they're services like Spotify, right? They're great services, I love them. They don't rely on user content, right? They don't need the kind of protection that we have here in the United States that makes those services possible. Right? So the evidence is right in front of you. I've talked about the, the, the distinction in venture capital investing, and what you've heard from the other side is primarily the companies, the companies, the companies, they can live with this. Right? What they're talking about are the biggest companies. Yes, of course, those companies can always live with regulation. They love regulation. It's a, it's a moat around their business model. Right? It protects them from disruption. But that's the disruption that I'm talking about. What I am most concerned about is that those companies can be disrupted, that someone new can come around and replace them. That happens in the United States. There is a cycle of that. That cycle has been short-circuited in Europe. And that's why I'm asking you to vote for this motion to recognize that, in fact, 
The Europeans, unfortunately, the European Union has declared war against American tech companies and indeed against the thing that has made innovation possible here in the United States, openness and experimentation, and instead Europeans are prizing control and stability. Thank you, Baron Soka. And our final speaker against the motion, Maritza Schake, former MEP and international policy director at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center. Well, what a, what a wonderful way to end. Uh, I echo the hope that newcomers and competitors will have all the space to innovate in this country too, and that they're not bought or strangled by big tech companies before they can even exist. I can also assure you on the slightly more dramatic and emotional statements that we heard that when I go home to Amsterdam, I go back to a country that's one of the most innovative economies in the world with a very, very lively startup sector. It's certainly not a place where civil society and SMEs are strangled and where there is a third world kind of uh, despair uh, in, in the streets. In fact, I would say the opposite and I invite you all uh, to come uh, and see for yourself. But to conclude, I actually wanted to go back to the questions that we got from the audience. The uh, lady from Australia, I think, asked a very, very important question when she said, I would like to bring it back to the people and ask the panel, what is better? This is a great question. And actually, what is better? Is San Francisco's decision to ban facial recognition technology better for the people? Or is the new data protection law in California better, a more libertarian approach that we see in Silicon Valley as well? Or is European-driven research funding for artificial intelligence better? Or is Chinese technology safe, or is it rather very dangerous for us? What is better is the question that is debated in parliaments, in city councils, and in debating halls like this one tonight every day. That is how democracy works, because the people do not agree what is better for them. But what I think is for sure is that it is better when the people in their parliaments and in their democracies decide than when shareholders decide. Because what shareholders believe generally and what their responsibility is to maximize profit and often maximize efficiency, for example, of apps, screen time, and more addiction of children, it's all better for profit. So instead of having shareholders or algorithms that are increasingly deciding for the people what is best, I will prefer that our parliaments and our city councils and our democratically elected officials will battle it out together in a way that fits our democracy. And I would actually suggest that instead of hyping the notion of war coming from Europe to the United States, we think more in terms of how we can work together in this democratic way that makes our societies and our internet as open as it is, and that we look globally at the true threats that we should be concerned about, and those are not coming from Europe. They're, among other places, coming from China, where a state-driven, control-driven model uh, is going to be more and more dominant the more we differ between ourselves. Thank you. Thank you, Murtishaka. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side you have argued the best. So now it's time for you to vote the second time, and that vote will determine our winner. Again, go to your phones and go to that URL and vote one more time. And I want to clarify something. Victory for, in this organization, this program, victory goes to the team whose numbers go up the most from the first to the second vote. It's not the absolute vote, it's the shift, it's the pull from one side to the other 
because what we're looking at is the quality and the persuasiveness of the arguments that are made as judged by you. So while you're doing that, um, I have a couple things I wanted to say. First of all, um, this, was, this was kind of a, um, a technically complicated debate. I got a little bit into technology, a little bit into law, a little bit into morality, a little bit into politics, a little bit into history. There were a lot of moving parts. Sometimes we went, we, the train went a little bit off the tracks, but we kept pulling it back. I want to thank the debaters for cooperating with all of that and also for doing this, having this argument in front of everybody in a spirit of respect. Um, you're, you're, you're all, you all obviously really like Europe, so that was pretty clear. Um, and I think in the long run, you're all really basically believing in the same thing. You're just disagreeing a little bit on the means to get there. But what you were able to do is to have that conversation in a way that was civil and enlightening, and that's what we aim for here. So I want to thank you for how you did all of this tonight. Um, I, I especially want to thank Jeff Jarvis and uh, Anu Bradford for the questions that they brought to the conversation this evening and to everybody else who got up and asked a question. I think this is the first time in a long time that I haven't had to turn down a question, so they were terrific, and I want to thank you for that as well. Um, a little bit about uh, things that are coming up for us. I'm sorry, I have to flip through the card to get to the specifics of it. We're, right now we're in the middle of our fall season, um, and we have some debates coming up in the next few weeks that really touch on some some kind of classic and eternal arguments that we haven't taken on before. So on October 29th, that's just a week from tonight, we're gonna to be back here at the K Playhouse and we're really taking on the uh, nature versus nurture issue. The resolution is phrased, parenting is overrated. And what we're looking at is, is new research uh, that's been published that suggests that D the DNA of a child has much more to do with who that child turns out to be as a personality than what the parents might do in creating the environment for that child. And there's a real intense argument going on about that. And we have the people who are the, the key researchers in that field and key arguers in that field. And we just think it's gonna be really, really fascinating. So if, if you were born, this relates to you. So <laughs> I, I think you're gonna find it really, really interesting. Um, and then on November 12th, we're back here again and we're taking on the capitalism versus socialism debate. Very, very elemental and fundamental. The resolution is phrased, capitalism is a blessing. So we hope to see as many of you come out for that one. You can get tickets at our website, iq2us.org. Um, while we're waiting for the results, I just wanted to have, a, this is not part of the competition any longer, but just curious to see what you think since we were talking about regulation in Europe and uh, the challenges there. Uh, we got into this a little bit uh, about, about the situation here, but we, we've, we're curious now after we've done more than 170 debates um, about things going on around the world. If you take home this tech topic to the US, to the election coming up, do you think it's that, that, that the thing that we're gonna be talking about, do you think it has a relevance, it will have a relevance that we'll see it coming up in the presidential contest that unfolds both within the Democratic Party and then between the Democrat and whoever the Republican candidate turns out to be. Um, do you, do you, do you, where, where do you see this going? And do you see ultimately five years from now are we gonna be living with a more regulated tech sector or not? Rosalind, you so I've actually written on this topic. I think I would like to ask you to go to AEI.org. I wrote a paper on tech policy in the midterms in 2018. And what I, my, I looked at was looking at the different, what drives people to the polls and traditionally economic questions. Um, tech policy can be helpful to 
um, create symbolic politics. It's a way to get different people to, to engage. But typically at the polls, people aren't necessarily thinking about the tech companies or tech policy. It's generally the, the wallet issues. But I do lay that out in the paper, and if people want to see it, you know, it has a lot of interesting um, references and data. Maricha, what do you think? Now that you're out at Stanford, it's, it's especially. It's already... Well, it's already a topic. There is an actual battle, to stick with uh, this evening's metaphor, going on between Mark Zuckerberg and Elizabeth Warren that uh, you all could be uh, a witness to. We hear the president of this country alleging that the tech platforms are, you know, to the far left, maybe your other topic of debate, uh, socialist um, uh, as well. So uh, the idea of, of um, are they politically uh, nonpartisan? Um, are they able to determine the outcome of these elections, uh, I think is a very lively question, especially after 2016. And I would hope, but let me just uh, end with that as an observer of American politics, not as, as a voter, but as someone who appreciates the power of this country for, for better and for worse, that I hope that it can be a nonpartisan issue, that there not be foreign or other interference uh, that undermines the democratic rights of the American people. I think that that is hugely important. And, and for people to exercise that right, and I want to compliment you, it is very important to have a well-informed debate. And the question is, what is the impact of uh, more and more online engagement, more and more uh, young people looking for information online, does it help a well-informed political debate or hurt it? I leave it up to you, but I, I wish for a well-informed debate and uh, uh, the rights of people protected. Okay, let's hear from Ramesh and then give Baron the last word. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to join you all tonight. Um, two, two quick points. One is, um, you know, we all remember in 2016, Facebook was the place where Americans got news dominantly more than any other platform. Of course, journalistic platforms published their news onto Facebook, but it also became a place where we started to see content. We didn't know where it came from. That's obviously going to be a huge issue yet again. Also, Trump's, um, unfortunately, baseless claim, President Trump's baseless claim that Google, uh, Google's sort of search results system altered um, millions of votes uh, away from him in 2016 and even more votes away from the Republican Party in 2018. Those are sorts of issues, to Maricha's point, that we're going to have to rebut and deal with. But the last thing I'll say is it's not, when we talk about technology, it's not just sort of technology platforms itself. It's the vehicle and the, the modalities by which our society and our world and our economies are changing. And that's why we saw in the last Democratic debate a lot of discussion. Uh, fortunately, I was glad about the gig economy, about automation and so on. So it's actually partly about the technologizing of human experience. And so what does that mean and how do we ensure that our values as Americans are protected in relation to those trends that we understand what we're getting into as well? Thank you, Baron. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, we see growing bipartisan agreement that the U.S. should work more like Europe, that we should have more control from the government, and that the platforms themselves should be more in charge of who says what online. Right? That's what Donald Trump says. That's what you hear from Elizabeth Warren as well. Right? I think that's profoundly disturbing. And unfortunately, it's a situation, as I've emphasized time and time again, that Facebook ultimately can manage. But Nobody else can. The smaller platforms, the smaller companies that could have taken off in the past simply will not be able to do so. And we're going to be in a more and more controlled, if you will, oligopolistic future because people are cracking down on the very fundamentals that have made it possible for one company to come along and replace the next company in the United States, right? We're talking about making platforms responsible for everything their users say and do online. That is the kiss of death 
for small companies. So we're going to leave with a smile on our faces. <laughs> I guess not. All right. Thank you for all of those thoughts. They're very, very interesting and, 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 and insightful. Um, so um, it's all in. I've just received the results. Uh, remember, it's the difference between the first vote and the second vote that determines our winner. Here's how it went. On the resolution, Europe has declared war on American tech companies. Before the debate and polling the live audience here in New York City, 30% agreed with the resolution, 23% were against, and a very large 47% were undecided. Again, those are the first results. It's gonna be the difference between that and the numbers I'm about to read out that determines our winner. The team arguing for the resolution, Europe has declared war on American tech companies. Their first vote was 30%. Their second vote, 30%. They stayed flat on that one. The team arguing against the resolution, their first vote was 23%. Their second vote was 64%. They pulled up 41 percentage points. That makes them the winner, the team arguing against the resolution that Europe has declared war on American tech companies. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time.